We are now ready for our third panel titled Platforms for Exchange and Community Building. Okay, so now I would like to invite the moderator as well as uh, the panelists on stage. Okay, and this panel will be moderated by Dr. Laurel Teo, who is Senior Research Fellow at IPS. And once again, if you have your questions, you can use the standing microphones to ask them directly to the panelists, or you can use the online form, poll everywhere, using the QR code at the back of your name badge. Laurel, over to you. Hi, good afternoon, everyone. I'm very happy to be here today. Uh, my name is Laurel. I'm a senior research fellow with IPS. Um, today, I'm moderating the session on platforms. Um, earlier in this morning, we heard about how peers, individuals, and small groups uh, can work together to help empower communities to effect social change. And then we also heard about location-based approaches. So the session now is about platforms. So um, what are platforms? Platforms are essentially um, third-party uh, uh, third party uh, services, um, I guess um, uh, something that brings uh, stakeholders together with shared interests and common interests. So on the one hand, you have some stakeholders who are seeking a service or group, and on the other hand, you have stakeholders who offer a service or group, and then platforms bring them together to do that. Uh, but platforms are not just about um, connecting people. They are also, what they do is they enlarge the common pool of resources and the stakeholders. Uh, so what happens is um, uh, where if you were an individual stakeholder, you might spend a lot of resource trying to hunt for that one suitable partner. But on a platform, you come there and you look, there's a whole large pool of uh, people and uh, stakeholders that you can work with. So there's that added value as well. And then um, besides that, um, other things that platforms can do, um, they can um, also help to do some QC quality control of the services. Uh, they can um, make sure that uh, maybe help enforce uh, contracts, like make sure that one party delivers and the other pays up. So in a, in a commercial or corporate world, we're very familiar with platforms such as uh, something like a stock exchange. We have uh, stockholders looking to buy assets and companies are seeking funding. So there's that. But what is a platform in the social service world? What does that mean? So um, here today, we're very fortunate uh, to have uh, three uh, very good speakers from, who are representing three very different platforms at very different stages of development. So we'll hear from them about it. I'll just give a very quick introduction because um, you can read about them, the full bios in, 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 the, in the conference brochure. So we, the first speaker we have will be Mr. Johan Anwar, who is uh, currently uh, an Action Fellow with the Future Ready Society Action Fellowship. So he's working um, basically um, at the IPS Future Ready Project on an inclusive business incubator. And he will be talking about that. Um, um, apart from this current role, um, he's worn many hats in the social service sector, uh, many years uh, working with not-for-profit engineering group, and he just stepped down as CEO last year. And I hear you're a cyclist as well. So, okay. Second speaker we have is uh, Ms. Cynthia Chang, who is Assistant Dean of the uh, College of Interdisciplinary and Experiential Learning at the SUSS, uh, Singapore University of Social Sciences. So Cynthia has extensive experiences in service, uh, service learning, community engagement, and also diversity, equity, and inclusion. And she's uh, also currently a community fellow at IPS. Uh, you can see that we keep pulling in people uh, and making them do work for us. <laughs> and we'll be speaking on her project, Campus Community Matching Platform for Skills-Based uh, Service Learning. And the third speaker we have is Ms. Uh, Colinette, uh, who joined Tomastic Trust in 2021. Uh, she's now the director of Tomastic Trust's Center for Impact Investing and Practices. Now, she comes from the public service with more than 20 years of experience in many portfolios, uh, holding uh, portfolios in infocoms and arts, uh, trade and industry, and media development authority, and so on. Um, and she will be speaking about um, social stock exchanges and brokerage for impact. I think that's the title of that. So each speaker will have about 10 to 15 minutes to talk about, uh, present about their platform. Um, after that, we'll have a short round of discussion among the panelists, and then we'll open up to the floor for about maybe uh, 20 minutes or so of Q&A. All right, so um, without further ado, may I invite uh, Mr. Johan to um, uh, share about his platform. Yeah. Hi, 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 does this thing work? Okay, hi everyone. Evening, afternoon, I don't know what time it is because we don't have any windows. Um, 
So my name is Johan. We, uh, me and my co-conspirator are looking into uh, inclusive businesses, uh, whether we can incubate them. Um, when uh, we were talking about us being in very different stages of uh, running our different platforms, uh, mine is the ideation to incubate an incubator. So we are so early in the stage, this is where the guy and the girl are just figuring out what to put onto the Tinder profile. Um, so we welcome all sorts of ideas to put onto our Tinder profile uh, and, and more, than, uh, more than happy to have inputs and questions and answers because to be honest, I will probably give you more questions than answers whether you like it or not. Um, does this thing work? Do I point? Okay, so the overarching question that we are looking at is whether can we incubate and calculate businesses uh, that the underserved want to create? Uh, basically, Machi want to make curry pub because that's much easier for her. Is within her skill set. Is what she wants to do. Can we create an incubator to uh, promote that? Right. So our mission is to assess whether that incubator is viable on many, on many levels, uh, whether there's demand, whether there's uh, a lot of machis out there who want to make curry puffs. Uh, we, we hear all the stories, right? But we don't actually know what the data is. Uh, and then after that, if the, it is viable, then we are going to create and prototype the incubator. Of course, one of the issues that we are going through is, one of the many issues is that we actually don't know how do you characterize disadvantage? I think most of the people here in this room we will talk to to try and get a handle on this, but we will have to uh, create some sort of vertical for whom we are going to uh, serve. And there has been a lot of talk, there has been a lot of people um, coming out with their own little side hustles or home-based businesses, and especially through the pandemic. Um, and I think what's important is us to separate pandemic, pre-pandemic, pandemic, and now post-pandemic uh, to see whether there is actually um, demand for this. So we are going to be doing our landscape research. We will start soon. Uh, talking to all the stakeholders who will be part of this and designing the program and then running the incubator itself. So i just very quickly introduce Simon, who is not here because he liked to arrow me to do things and uh, myself, and I think this is the main goal, um, that we want to create a sustainable business incubator. And actually, uh, I'm more here to try and pitch a project that I will want to talk to you guys about, basically. Okay, so I think that's me. Yes, thank you. Yeah, um, Cynthia, do you have, yeah. Oh, do you have a slide? Okay, um, right, um, okay, right. Um, so I guess we have Lynette now to speak first. Oh, your slides now, okay. We've got the right slides now, okay. No worries, okay. Hi everyone, I'm Cynthia. Um, I think what Joe and I have in common is we're competing to see whose idea is more nascent. Uh, I, I, I confess mine is more nascent than his. Uh, nowhere near as uh, big as where, what he uh, was explaining. But uh, first of all, I think I want to explain why I'm on this panel. I would uh, never in a million years think of myself as somebody who would be speaking about platforms. Uh, but sometimes um, the need... Uh, comes, arises on its own, and um, as uh, Justin mentioned as well, uh, many people in this room have somehow said yes to <laughs> Justin for many different things. I'm one of them as well. Uh, but what I wanted to share is maybe a confession that my experience in this area of platform building um, comes a couple of years ago when I was, I guess, idealistic enough to think that after Singapore having had two decades worth of service learning, that it would be probably the right time for us to start a platform 
for people to share information, a sort of information depository or repository uh, about service learning, why people chose particular philosophies, strategies, programming decisions of why they did it the way they did it because it means a lot of different things to different people. Uh, some people think it's volunteering. Some people think it's a whole philosophical change in the, the way that uh, they engage with community. Uh, so many different uh, interpretations of it. And a lot of the early pioneering work was uh, lost in that sense. And so um, we decided to start a platform for people uh, to share information about it. And that platform is in operation. It's been close to five years now. But when I'm very honest with myself, I know it doesn't quite host the volume of resources or get the kind of traction that it could. So uh, when I reflect on why that platform is not living up to its potential, my key takeaway is, and may I borrow the... Thank you. <laughs> um, is this ownership. So what I learned really is that uh, ownership of platforms is really, really key. While I had uh, imagined a platform that was either co-owned by several different organizations with a stake in service learning or a neutral organization uh, for reasons that I probably will not go into here, the platform ended up being hosted by one organization. And once that structure was in place, right, once it's launched under that one single organization, no matter how much outreach I do, uh, to other institutions, no one would contribute to the platform. So what I'm sharing here is my abject failure, and that's what qualifies me to sit here, I suppose. And a politician I, don't, I won't name recently lamented that Singapore institutions have a problem with copying good ideas. This person claimed that although we are so small, and I think we heard it today as well, although we are small, so small, we aren't terribly good at sharing and adopting ideas from each other. The other problem uh, is also that nobody wants to do something if that idea didn't originate from their institution. Everybody wants to be the organization that does something new and does something original. But this person also said that, you know, uh, when you're talking about economies, right, the fastest growing econ economies are the ones where uh, people are borrowing and building upon what already exists. Uh, I think Dennis this morning also mentioned rethinking improvement within between and beyond schools, right? So while I didn't have uh, much control over how that platform was owned, uh, what that experience I had, that five years ago experience, confirmed that while similar platforms to do the same thing in the US can be hosted by one institution and gain traction across many different institutions, in Singapore, we need co-ownership from the get-go. So that's my takeaway. A few years older, and I hope foolish in a different way now. Uh, my question here is how to build a platform with a more collective ownership structure. So what we have is an opportunity. Um, I'm part of the Singapore Service Learning Community of Practice. We are an informal network of uh, service learning or community engagement uh, providers, in, uh, community engagement uh, officers in Singapore, uh, in Singapore's higher uh, learning ecosystem. And this community of practice facilitates exchange, learning, and collaboration among members. All our members serve as facilitators or connectors of youth, students, uh, with community organizations. Uh, last year, I mentioned that our ideal partners are the ones who are looking to groom advocates and invest resources. Uh, and ideally have a strategy for why they choose to work with a specific group of students or individuals from an institution. Uh, for example, they might want to be reaching out to early childhood majors or human resource majors before they go out to become professionals in their professions, right? And so that's their very strategic way of doing outreach. And that led to this question, what if we could build a platform that could connect organizations with all the IHLs? The challenge we have now is that um, in most of the cases, each organization's um, collaboration with every IHL is separate. Uh, and then secondly, when organizations work with students from multiple different IHLs, sometimes these students are often assigned to the same tasks. If they're business majors or if they're social work majors, they're still asked to do the same thing. 
And then also the last one is that if you already have an existing relationship with an IHL, it seems to be simpler to just work with the same IHL rather than search for a different IHL with students in a specific major that might be exactly what you're looking for. So, what if we could build a platform that all service-link officers and all uh, IHLs could use together, that they could consider using? Would that then cut through the silos that all our uh, different IHLs operate in? And could it be a way that IHLs could work with community organisations in a more holistic way? Uh, for example, this morning, Justin mentioned a possible uh, community engagement outreach event that all the IHLs participate in rather than every institution uh, has their own, right? Could it actually encourage the type of boundary crossing, also mentioned this morning by Dennis, on uh, complex issues, collaborating on complex issues, right, that the world needs us to do much better at addressing? Uh, I think the this... Today's conference was framed along those challenges, right? Climate crisis, economic inequality, social fragmentation. Nobody can do it on their own. So should we have platforms or could we build platforms that enable us to say, how can all of us collectively contribute to trying to uh, address some of these challenges together? So what's the vision? Uh, a platform that encourages collective collaboration uh, between one or more community organisations and students or faculty from one or more IHLs. It's also a platform that should be collectively owned by its users. And the scale that we're looking at is uh, because annually, more than tens, and tens of thousands of students would be involved in this if every IHL joins. That's the scale that we're looking at. And possibly beyond because, uh, who knows, it could be a platform that uh, survives beyond uh, their IHL uh, candidature. And so, what are the possibilities? The platform could enable community organisations to pitch individually or in groups about what are some of the issues that they'd like us to work on. It could also enable students to collaborate in groups and pitch ideas to community organisations, possibly in connection to the areas that they study. And then this should have institutional accounts for IHLs to be able to track these collaborations between the students and the community organisations and also to have an overview of these partnerships. And now I'm going to say that I have absolutely no idea how to do this and I'm very much looking forward to connecting with anyone in the room who knows how to do this or who may see the potential to connect this with something that might already exist out there. Thanks. Thank you so much, Cynthia. I think it sounds exciting. You're enlarging sort of like the pool that of IHLs that can work with um, the, the social service sector as well. So um, hopefully someone somewhere will have a bright idea, maybe during the Q&A session. Um, Lynette, yeah. Sure. Hi, I'm Lynette from the Centre for Impact Investing and Practices. Um, just a little word on impact investing, because I think there have been comments about what's impact, how do you measure impact? So I guess a natural question is, what is impact investing? Um, and that is that it is possible to make money and do good at the same time. It doesn't have to be one or the other. Sometimes the returns may not be market-based, but very often it can be market-based. And, and keep that in your mind, because what we're trying to do is to use market-based mechanisms to help people scale impact, because otherwise, to go from grant to grant is extremely difficult. Um, so we're trying to get as many into the market-based system as possible. And that's what the centre does. We are a not-for-profit organisation. Uh, we don't make any investments, but we promote the idea of impact investing and we try to get more capital brought into this space so that collectively we can do good together. So I'm going to start with just two stories first before I go on to the platform that we're trying to, to build. Um, first, do, it came to me only in the past two years when the centre was set up and we were doing research into financial inclusion in the region that there are some 300 million people in Asia who don't have access to a bank account. You think about it, how would your life be different if you had no bank account to begin with? Forget about pay now, pay la and all that, you've got no bank account. You're about to graduate, you, you know, fall in love, want to buy your new home. You've got no bank account, you can't take a loan. 
a lot of things you cannot do if you've got no bank account, and 300 million people in Asia don't have that. Now, you would think, how do we get access to financial products for this group of people? Um, if I were to sit down and think about it from a few years ago when I was working very much in a non-profit space, I would think surely it must take some grant money to get them off the ground, and maybe the repayment rates will be quite low because the ability to pay may be low and things like that. And these are all the conceptions that we have. And that's one example of a research piece that the centre did. And people would tell us, uh, the microfinance institutions would tell us that people want to be responsible. They want to be able to pay off their loans. Actually, non-performing rates are very low for this group of people. No, not much higher than any other group because we are all wanting to be responsible. And in this space, what we've discovered is that it's actually a very viable business. You know, you, you might start off with a little bit of development money, uh, a bit of concessionary capital, but over time, it can be a very viable business. I give the example of a Thai company, Ngan Tit Law, who started off giving out title loans. So not very different from our, our uh, gig workers here. If you want to make deliveries for a living, you need a two-wheeler of some sort. How are you going to buy that two-wheeler? What loan are you going to able, be able to take if you've got no track record? So this company decided that this was a business I'm going to get into. At some point, I'm fast-forwarding the story, they discovered that sometimes people don't pay off their loans. And they went on to understand why. And it would be because something unexpected has happened. Fell sick, got into an accident, all sorts of things. Now, if we fell sick or got into an accident, you've got insurance. But for a group of people, there is no insurance, right? So what Ngantit Law did was they gave free insurance to, to this group just to do good. And over time, people realized that there's value in insurance and started to say, can I buy a more uh, comprehensive insurance package? Can I get more products? And that became a viable product line, a profitable product line. I'm going into some detail with the story to say that what starts off as something that did not sound like it could be a business actually became a very, very profitable business. Uh, the issue that one comes up with becomes one of financial literacy, digital literacy, all issues similar to what we can face in Singapore as well. We do have a lot of people who need credit counselling and things like that, so we are no different from many other communities. I give another story of enrichment, uh, enrichment programmes. You know, in Singapore, we're all so stressed, right? Education is so important. You, you know, give your, your kids as much enrichment programs as possible and all that so that they can make it to this school, that school. Issue is, what if you can't afford that in, in enrichment program? No different from a company in India where to get to a certain IHL, you do need enrichment programs. You do need to go for prep classes. But if you're from a tier three city, you can't afford it, it's going to be really tough. But if you're a tier three city, not earning very much, how can you afford enrichment programs? Well, a company called Vedantu discovered how to find, do it in a profitable way. Discovered how to organize teaching resources so that you maximize quality of teaching and yet increase reach to people who are earning hundreds of dollars a month and not able to pay very much for enrichment classes. So not, uh, not compromising on quality, but still giving access to a lot more people uh, a certain service. And this is a company that uh, uh, an impact fund has invested into. Clearly, it is making good money, uh, worthy of uh, an investor to come in. So I say all that in a very, very long introduction to my first slide to say that we know that the gap um, to sustainable development is widening. We, we, we've seen these numbers before. So we, we might talk about you know, uh, grant money, we need more, or certain concessionary uh, loans, we need more. But overall, $4 trillion is what's estimated as being needed. So you really have to go to all types of capital, not just one type. Our challenge is how to bring those types of capital together. And in Asia, we are underrepresented. There's a lot of money 
as people like to say, but not enough coming to Asia. How are we positioning ourselves as Asia? How is capital going to flow to Asia? So, you know, our, our challenge is to think actually that while there are many very important problems to solve in Singapore, is there a way we can solve them by tapping the ideas in the region for that matter globally so that we can do more together? There is a lot of opportunity, and that's one of the pieces of research that we did as well. The, the bar charts that you see here just shows a, a certain a, a piece of work done by the UNDP, uh, which the Centre for Impact Investing and Practices partnered with, to identify where are the gaps in Asia. And you can see that there are many, many uh, gaps. If you look at the table from F&B, a lot of uh, small uh, enterprises are in this business to healthcare, financial, education, etc. The challenge is how do we bring it all together? And we talk about collaboration. How do we have people from different spheres of life, you know, commercial uh, sector, non-profit sector, how do you have everyone come together so that ideas can flourish, so that we can direct capital to the most meaningful place? How do you Embrace partnerships. It's so easy to talk, oh, we need more partnerships. So how do you do it, right? So that we can accelerate and scale impact. As one of the bankers told us when we were trying to ask them, how come, you, you know, what's, what's stopping you from financing more good ideas? And his response was, you know, it's, it's one thing to come up with an innovative idea, but it's another thing to encourage adoption, of good ideas, and how do we get people to want to adopt these ideas as well, in a way that you can collaborate, learn, and more importantly, create that community. So that's what we are trying to do, and that's the platform that I'm here to talk about today. How do we catalyze more philanthropic capital towards one, one, one might call high-impact opportunities? And recognizing that different ways of giving, that different types of financial instruments, the financing example I spoke of just now, and the healthcare, uh, the education example that I spoke of, they would have received different types of funds along their journey. And how do we progress ideas through these types of capital, and at the end of the day, foster that community? So that's what we're trying to do, and this is what it starts to look like when we say, we need to collaborate. As you can see, this is an extremely complicated chart. Um, but, you know, Cynthia talked about ownership. And, and, you know, when you move away from a single owner model to a multi-owner model, this is a simplified chart. Um, but you can see that it's not easy. Uh, in the center uh, is the co-axis that we want to build. We want to be able to find ways to match funds and projects and companies. And on the left side is where we think some of the ideas of projects and startups can come from. Um, but really, we, we welcome them from everywhere. But on the right is the important part. At the extreme right, we have to talk about making sure that you want to make an impact. And I'm afraid to say, you know, even though we might want to build trust and all that, it's very hard to run away from having no reporting at all. Uh, if we want to avoid what's called washing, right? That you, you pretend to be something that you're not, you do need to be able to be accountable in some ways. But how to do that is not easy. So you look at the features, uh, we want to have advisors, the community uh, and network coming in, training, capacity building, monitoring, etc. It all gets very, very complicated. I think I'm very glad to say that when the idea was first mooted and we went around talking to a lot of people, there's a lot of traction, but therein is the challenge, right? You need to do it fast because, you know, we all talk about 2030 targets and we might not be able to meet those targets. And so every year lost is a very significant uh, step back. But how do you move fast and yet move everyone together in the same direction? is a challenge that we're grappling with all the time. Um, but we still have this goal to build the coexist, the collaborative exchange for impact and sustainability as a hub to catalyze capital, spark ideas, spur, spur innovation. And we try to simplify it. You know, you saw that 
complicated chart about the different types of parties that need to come together. But at the end of the day, it's different strokes for different folks, right? You know, you might be in a stage where you, you, you really need a pure grant to get your idea going. Uh, but at some point, maybe we should think about charging a little bit for a service. Because people want to live with dignity. Not everyone um, uh, is comfortable to stay at a certain stage and they want to be able to move on. And at that point, um, the idea of being able to charge for a certain service, however small that amount, so that you can recover that grant maybe, or maybe some concessionary debt, etc. So all sorts of instruments that are possible all sorts of project types across different themes, across different geographies, because we all have something to learn from each other. So that's the kind of uh, platform we're trying to build. Uh, we will start with a philanthropic focus first. Uh, that is something that we feel is very, very important to get off the ground, uh, starting with uh, matches of grants and possibly recoverable grants. Because as, as someone mentioned to me as I was talking to uh, a bunch of family office reps uh, some weeks back. There is a fear that as the world becomes more competitive, that the divide uh, comes to, to our world as well. That unless you're a big organization with high visibility, it's going to be really, really hard for you to fight for that grant. You know, so that's where we want to remove the information asymmetries as much as possible so that we can match the givers and the receivers uh, in a way that you can amplify the impact. But over time, we want to also be able to discover how to move along that spectrum of capital. So in the first instance, this is what we think it might look like, but we're in the process of you know, trying to design that platform. You know, it, it should look quite simple so that you can see what the ideas are that you might uh, be interested in and you might be willing to support. And you might be able to sort uh, depending on the types of capital that you have or the types of projects that you have or the types of passions that you have. Um, but to be able to move from uh, different sources of capital over time will be important. So we do also have um, outcomes that we've identified for the donors and investors, as well as the projects and fundraisers. Um, and I won't go through them, but you can see that these are, this is a lot of things to work towards. And, and so we do have to stage it, and this is how we're staging it. Um, fingers crossed, all, um, if, if all systems go as, as planned, we should be able to have a minimum viable product by April next year where we will focus on philanthropic giving uh, with some recyclable uh, features. Uh, but by phase, by year two, um, phase one, moving to different types of offerings so that we can uh, explore whether or not market-based uh, opportunities are also possible. And who knows, year four onwards, where that might bring us. So I think I've run out of time, and that's my sharing for the day. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lynette, and thank you so much uh, to the other two speakers as well. Um, three very different projects at different stages, uh, uh, working on different stakeholders in different areas. So thanks so much. Um, uh, maybe we can have a quick sort of discussion among ourselves. So one of the we keep hearing this about this question of ownership, right? Like who owns the platform, and what if your competitor is starting something different, or your competitor is not interested in using your platform? So, um, I think Cynthia, you, you talked a little bit about that, about how to avoid that. But maybe we can hear a little bit more about um, what is, is, is this? A, is this a concern for you, you when you start the the platform? Uh, what is this? Um, um, uh, how do you? What are some of the solutions or some of the answers that you can think of to avoid uh, the sort of uh, ownership, the ownership trap, so as to speak? Um, anyone like to start first? Yeah. Yeah, I. I think ownership is everything when it comes to an incubator. For um, let me let me say, let's say, just low-income community. Right? So the ownership is is everything. Um, it. It isn't. I mean, when 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 it comes to your revenue uh, generation, it 
especially in the space that, that I'm working in, is not only bringing you the money, but it is actually who you are. So being able to say that you are trying to grow and trying to feed your family and so on and so forth, um, it is actually a source of pride. And therefore, in that sense, for me, the, there's nothing but ownership when it comes to the incubator that I'm creating. And uh, holist but holistically, what Cynthia has touched on about um, how important it is for ownership, I think it is a double-edged sword, very importantly. I remember a friend of mine who was trying to build, uh, um, I can't remember what it was, but I think it was something to do with impact investing and then a platform or something like that. Uh, carbon, um, and he pitched it to a lot of people and everybody was very keen to do it. But once he said that, okay, we're not gonna use your name, then suddenly everybody was not out of it. We're just gonna take your network and your, and your resources and then we're all gonna pull together and it's gonna be under nobody's name. A lot of people pulled out. Um, so in that sense, I think I mean, I'm not sure, is it pride? Is it purpose that you know I, I bring to my organization that I've put my name into this? I think every, every prime minister, every president, every leader wants to have their like, pivotal project or something like that, but I think... Well, people want to get credit for what? Yeah, but, but I think more important is the work, basically. And I think as long as people cannot get that out of their system, a lot of us will be stuck in what we do. Okay, thank you so much. When I was reflecting on... Um, I mentioned ownership being one of the lessons that I learned, right. but actually the other one that I chose not to speak about was mission drift as well. So um, for me, when you ask the question about ownership, right? Ownership or co-ownership actually is a mechanism to guard against mission drift if your mission is to serve the collective, right? So ownership by an individual or an institution uh, that, of a platform that claims to serve the collective is often, in some ways, it's already set up to uh, have the potential to have that mission drift because you are, if, if the platform serves the interest of one single owner, then how is it possible? You know, the, the two are just conflicting. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah. On that, on that note, that's the reason why you need to, even though it's really complex, <laughs> that co-ownership is needed, yeah. And how would you effect a co-ownership? How would that work? Like, for example, if you are trying to design your, your device, sort of version 2.0, <laughs> improved version, how would you, how would you, how would you, how would you actually, what would co-ownership look like? Yeah. I think Lynette uh, brought this up, not rushing uh, into... Uh, trying to launch the thing, mm. making sure the partnerships are um, go and do the partnerships and discuss and work out how the collaboration is going to happen before even attempting to design it or launch it. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Matt. Yeah, I'll, I'll augment those points. Um, that mission drift is very, very important. So I think we need it to be very clear exactly why are we doing coexist. And while we may have different phases, the final phase needs to be quite clear so that you can see the path. You might deviate a little bit, but at least you know where the goal is so that we avoid that mission drift. Then within that, that whole construct then, what kinds of partners that we, do we need? And I think, you know, what we are figuring out, we haven't figured out everything, but what we're figuring out is everybody wants to feel special. Right, um, and, and although it may sound a bit cliche, everybody is special in their own way because when you've got a whole platform that you're trying to bring together, the platform needs to have multiple dimensions. Otherwise, it will not work as a platform. And when you've got so many facets to it, actually it is possible to carve out certain niches. So this partner, you bring this strength. This other partner, you bring this other strength. Mm. So that the third partner, you, you can see that I'm not fighting. We are complementing each other. And actually, it's in my interest to be on your platform because that's how I can leverage the strengths of the other people. So it's quite interesting. In the first discussions that we had, 
you know, and sometimes the first meeting you have is a function of scheduling, right? No other reason why you met this person first, except that that was the first meeting that the, the schedule smashed, right? So the person would ask, uh, who else are you meeting with, huh? Uh, am I the first? You know, things like that, right? And then you have to answer those questions very delicately. Um, but with that goal being very clear in the mind, it was very interesting that at a certain point in the conversations, the conversation will be, who else are you bringing in? Because we need other people to come in. I can't be the only one. We do need other people to come in. Um, so that's, that's been very interesting and, and heartwarming, I guess, to, to observe. Mm. The challenge is still to bring it together. Right. And at some point, ownership is also a legal ownership. And we have mm. to discuss all that too. Right, right. I'm glad you talk about partners because um, when we talk about platforms, oftentimes we think about the structure and the sort of like the the hardware of it, right? So the tech, technology, like building this portal and getting people to log on and having the website listing all these things. But actually, once you've built it, who's going to use it? And how are people? Uh, and how are we going to sort of direct traffic or encourage people to use it? And what about partners? You talked about that. So actually, platforms are more than just being a portal there. But actually, it's about the sort of uh, looking for partners, having delicate conversations with partners, and also getting people to try and um, adopt and use the platform. So what are some of your thoughts in this area? Yeah. yeah. Well, I give the, if I, I'll yeah, just yeah, start first. Yeah. I'll give the example of the financial inclusion uh, case that I mentioned. Mm. Where you imagine uh, around the region, there are people living in very, very rural communities very hard to reach, very basic digital infrastructure. Mm. Um, you can't have a pure digital approach to it. Uh, trust is very important. You can't build trust purely by a digital approach. So we found very interesting business models in microfinance where the platform owner partnered with a community group and they leverage each other's strengths. So when the community person goes to a certain uh, potential customer, you're talking about the idea of you know, why a bank account is useful, why you might need that loan, and it's okay, you will be able to pay off that loan. But after that, when you're all ready to access your first bank account and loan, the digital platform kicks in. And you don't have to worry about it because you've partnered with someone else who's got that platform. So we called it a digital approach, physical plus digital, and it worked very well in the microfinance world. And I think it'll be the same in any platform that you create. People still want that physical sense of belonging. So in our minds, the platform, while digital, will have to have a lot of community elements. Mm -hmm. And that's how you bring it together. Right. Okay, thank you. Uh, and Johan, did you have anything to say about that, especially the community element? Um, I think that, well, down to the level of work that we are doing, which is really one-to-one -to, -one to people, um, what is imperative is that we talk to individuals, mm -hmm. in which case then we actually need a lot of resources, <laughs> not, just, um, not just money, but also a lot of manpower, a lot of time, a lot of uh, people with sufficient EQ to garner the, the, the information that is needed, right? Um, one of the things that I learned when I was running Engineering Good is that a uh, bunch of engineers with very low EQ is not a good place to start with like, when you want to talk to, to, to uh, beneficiaries and donors. So, and, and, I, and I talked to one of the um, other SSA leaders and, and, he, and we, were trying, we were a growing organization then and he said, and I asked him, so, so we're growing, I, I, I have a lot of um, people that I want to serve, who, who should I hire first? And without a, a beat, he said, marketing, straight away, marketing. Um, I think we live in, an, in a world now where every minute 10,000 hours of YouTube is being uploaded. Uh, you will never watch everything that has been, has been created. Therefore, how do you stand out? How do you put yourself out there so that people will notice you? I, I like to say, I mean, I, I think a lot of us have iPhones. I like to say that Apple is 
not a tech company, it's a marketing company. It sells a lifestyle, it sells, it sells a brand. That's why you use it, right? That's why you're inside this Stockholm syndrome of an ecosystem that you'll never get out of. Um, but uh, in, in that sense, you know, the tech is the back end. The, the stuff that we create, the incubator, that's the back end. Uh, that's, that's, that's the stuff you want to use. But more importantly, how bringing people in is uh, what is necessary. And that takes people beyond me. And I, I, I need people who are better than me to do that. Yeah. Okay, thank you. How about, yeah, Cynthia? In my case, I think um, the very common way to solve this problem is just uh, let's go to get a vendor. Right? Let's just outsource the thing and you know, some, somebody can like, build this platform. It's very, very common. We do it all the time. Uh, but the issue is persistent because every single IHL goes to a different vendor. The different vendor has a different solution. The solution is not built for connecting IHLs to communities. They have somehow taken some other program that they've uh, created for some other purpose and then they've retrofitted it and then they're like, here, use it, you know, and then it doesn't actually serve your purpose. So although this is all at the ideation stage, right, it, the, the concept behind this one is really, we were brainstorming, right? And should this be a platform that is owned by the people with the needs? Because if the common solution is not working, right, which is let's go to the tech vendor and ask for something, it's not working, then should we then try to create something for ourselves to serve this need that we have? Yeah. Okay, thanks very much. Um, maybe we can open the session to the floor. Um, I see questions coming up. Anyone? Over there? Anywhere? Oh, okay. This gentleman over here. Yeah. Oh yeah, again, Kelvin here from Lee Kuan Yew Centre for Innovative Cities. Maybe I want to address the question of the, um, uh, you, you mentioned the, like the fight over control. So maybe some uh, practices that I can share from academia is that normally we cite one another's work even if we're collaborating with a partner. For example, in our work, we collaborate with NTUC, labour unions and so on. And we always uh, uh, cite, one, cite one another in the final report or the academic report. Because what I've noticed is that um, in, in, uh, from several organisations, sometimes when you publish the final report, only the C CEO's name is there. All the staff who work there, they are not acknowledged in any form. So maybe this leads to a lot of fighting within the organisation and between organisations also. So some best practices is that whether it's an academic report or industry report, you can clearly list down the co-authors or the authors, even the junior staff who have contributed or even people who have left. So this makes people more willing to contribute also. And it also helps the junior staff to grow along the way. So I think one thing that, uh, I, mean, I myself have been at LKYCSE for five years and I've always liked the culture whereby even junior staff can contribute their names to publications, both in academia or not. And it's quite simple. So you, you list down the co-authors. In the acknowledgement section, you can also uh, acknowledge people who maybe they did not contribute to the level of authorship but it still contributed along the way also. And then you thank your collaborators and partners. So this way, it prevents a lot of fighting between people, between organisations and so on. So maybe that can help uh, along the way. The last point is that in academia, we always cite one another. So if you have people from other teams, you can just cite them in like APA format or, or whichever format you follow, but it helps you quote one another and build on one another's ideas rather than fighting in between. That's just all I have to say. Thanks much. So that's a recommendation to give credit. Um, Questions from, from the floor, maybe? Any questions for our panellists? Or perhaps, oh yes, please. Hi, uh, my name is Han. I'm from the Lian Centre at SMU. Uh, my question is about the runway that we create for change. And I get a sense that very often we don't have a long enough runway to create change before we say, okay, your KPIs are up, you haven't met them, out you go. I wonder if there's a way for us to kind of redefine this way of innovation, right? Because when we're putting up a platform, we're trying something new, mm -hmm. right? And that's why we also want to create opportunities for failure so that we can learn from it and iterate it. So when we take a very user-centered design to approach a problem, you know, it's your resource mapping, asset mapping, you know, it's you're building a theory of change, then you're going to your community to get feedback from your users, and then you're getting them back to validate your solutions. That process is very long, right? And it requires us to really build a much longer runway in order to create a future-ready 
uh, society. I wonder if you have any comments or inputs on how we can change or even redefine this runway, because I get a sense that organizations don't have a long enough runway, and especially with the funding cycles that they have to work around. And, and I wonder if you have some inputs or comments about that. Yeah, so how do we get rid of the sort of short-termism that, that, that's plaguing us? Yeah, get by it, because very often we want it faster, quicker, you know, now, tomorrow, yesterday. Right? <laughs> right. So how do we get people to think and adopt and implement longer term? Um, thoughts from the panelists? Um, one, one of the things that I like to, when, when, when I speak to young people, I'm not that old, this <laughs> China, is that what I would like them to do is try. Try and fail, try again. Um, because failing is one of the best ways to learn. I think a lot of us know this, I think a lot of us know this from experience, I think a lot of us has failed, hopefully. But one thing that we don't do is practice what we preach. We still, um, we still look down on people who didn't do well in life. We still um, look upon people's academic uh, results, you know, as A's being better than B's and C's and F's. At the end of the day, I think we, as a people, as a society, as a culture, need to be able to embrace that um, being, being able to embrace that we want people to try. And when we want people to try, there will be people who fail. And we don't look at the people who fail as if they are not worth um, our, our time or our employment or our opportunity as much as anybody else. But in fact, if you failed and if you tried, then I think you've done stuff. Um, I was going through some scholarship applications a while ago, and one of the things that stuck out to me is that there's the, the organizations that are taking these scholarships, they are looking less and less at the academic criteria, uh, at the academic results, but more and more at the portfolio, more and more at what the, the person has done in life. And although I think this is a, this is a step forward, um, I do think it's a double-edged sword because then everybody will be stressed and to always do stuff. Um, I think that this is the way it should be, that we should try and promote people to, to do things, uh, and maybe they fail, it's okay. right? One of the things that I tell my staff when, when they come in is, uh, what we preach is, do first, ask for forgiveness later. Uh, you step on a lot of toes, but you get stuff done. And sometimes it hurts people's pride when, you know, the toes you step on are theirs. But that's something I feel, again, as a culture, as a society, we need to learn. So to answer your question, I think the change has to come from within. We can change and make things faster and organize uh, change and, 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 and do things faster, but we have to allow it. I think a lot of things, a lot of the issues come from within. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, no, thank you so much. And um, well, uh, Cindy, you shared very candidly about your abject failure on your first platform project. So I'm sure you have some thoughts on this. Yeah, thanks so much for that question. I think uh, my being here and being given another chance to try something else is a really great uh, testimony to uh, our enabling ecosystem here. And I thought also that uh, although maybe this is not very common in our funding space yet, the whole idea of having future-ready society and I'm not, I'm not being paid to plug anything here. But uh, the whole idea of this future-ready society and the kinds of, even if it's a nascent idea, come and pitch this idea, let's see what can gen generate out of that, right? Is that kind of supportive, uh, potentially supportive ecosystem that, that uh, can, can enable that longer runway to happen. But the other thing, I think, coming from an educator's perspective as well, right, is the idea of how do we learn well from that failure because it's one thing to encourage failure but if we are not consciously being aware of 
okay, uh, did I push the risk boundaries enough? Uh, and um, what was risky about this? What am I consciously aware of it, that was a risk? And then this part failed. And then what is my reflection? And what would I try to do differently next time? All these different areas of reflection, right? Then maybe that failure is can we consider a waste? It could be considered a waste. So we, I, I don't think we should always glorify failure, but at the same time, how, what are we, what productive, how, how is failure productive for us and what are we taking away and using? Okay, so it's okay to fail, but fail productively. <laughs> yeah. And we have to define that, right? What is productive failure for ourselves? Yeah. Okay, Lynette? Yeah. Um, I'm going to use, uh, I don't know if it's the right term, reverse competition. Um, because after all, we're talking about platforms, and platforms is where you can bring a lot of information up front so that people can see how they compare with each other because after all, human beings are competitive, right? So I give uh, another example, and I've been in the non-profit space, non-profit stroke government space for long enough for my answer to be non-traceable, I think, so you won't be able to tell which organization that came from. Um, but I was in a position of, you know, having put in some, some funding into a certain project. Um, and, you know, as usual, uh, coming from Singapore, I, I'd say, you know, driving a, a hard line about timeline, KPIs, milestone reports, etc., and having a discussion with the, the party on, you know, what can we expect by when, right? Then, and I knew I wasn't the only funder for that project. And it happened that I was able to have a, a chat on one occasion with the other funder because we were all then in, in Singapore together and this funder was not from Singapore. And I asked him, so, you know, what is your requirement for this, this fundee? And he said, oh, I give them a free reign, whatever, I trust them, can already. <laughs> and I thought, here I am with all those things and here is the alternative funder saying, I trust them, whatever, you know. And so that, that shows you, wow, it's such a different way of looking at a fundee. The person has established trust and this is approach. And that caused me to pause and think, am I doing more harm than good by having all these milestones and KPIs and timelines? So competitive in a way, but also learn, right? We learn that there are different ways of doing things. And the platform, I think, opens our eyes to other ways of doing things. Because sometimes you do need to be fast, sometimes you don't need to be fast. And hopefully the platform can help us learn when to be what. Okay, great. That, that's a fantastic story there. <laughs> um, okay, um, any other questions from the floor? Um, oh, great. Yes, please. I'm relatively new. Um, okay, thank you. Um, from Social Enterprise, uh, Teresa Daftuda. Uh, well, I would like to add, uh, kind of uh, put forth this question about KPIs and all that. Yeah, of course, trust is the most basic thing when we want to do any project between the collaborators or even the funders. But it also drives back, <laughs> drives to a point where I also thought of, if I find a project, I need some form of accountability. So can we be so laser fair that, no, no need any measurement, I just trust them. I think that trust will only come if you have already a long-term relationship, you saw there's a track record, then you can be just literally set free to, trust the partner or the collaborator fully. So yes, as much as Singapore, we are well known for KPI, I do agree in part, but I think we shouldn't be too driven by KPIs. That I, I also felt so, yeah. Okay, so um, I'm trying to figure out a question from that. So not to be driven by KPIs, maybe the question is, how do we then balance? How do we draw this balance between giving people the sort of um, autonomy and flexibility to do and not micromanage uh, the funder, not micromanaging the fundee. And then also, but then at the same time, um, ensure that there's some sort of uh, accountability there. Yeah. 
Okay, I, I don't have an answer to that. <laughs> but what I do have is, is a little comment about trust and accountability, which is that five years ago, I would not have put my, I would tell my daughters to stay away from strangers' cars. Don't get into a stranger's car. Now I'm calling strangers to pick them up. <laughs> right? And what, what has led to that change? That change came because there was a platform that gave us not only accountability, but ratings in the bottom line. It's a way for us to kind of like Tai Chi trust to another system. And um, this is where I think tech can help. Uh, if used correctly, wisely, and with sufficient marketing power behind it. Um, that we can actually use the tools that technology uh, these days with um, the collaborativeness of the new internet um, to allow us to be able to trust each other uh, by learning from other people's trust. It's what we've always done all our life. Oh, this guy, your friend. Uh, that's, then I'll trust him because he's your friend. But right now, we are going by trust of saying, oh, this guy has sold 200 other uh, shoes to other people. Therefore, I trust him because he's, you know, he's not a fly-by-night person. So I think that there is a new paradigm of how we can use these uh, platforms and technology to inculcate trust and accountability. We just haven't used it to the full potential yet. Okay, that, that's a fantastic example there. Okay, any, any thoughts from Cynthia? I, connecting to what Joe just said, and I learned this from a very wise person in this room, uh, about the idea of creating flexibility within enabling boundaries. So, can, in some way, you can treat the KPIs as that huge, broad, uh, boundary, right? But how can you create flexibility within that big boundary so that that um, the dotted line versus the real hard lines, right? So how can we play within the, those dotted lines and yet still have your accountability within the hard uh, lines? So uh, no answers again, <laughs> but how do we create that? Right. Questions are answers as well sometimes, yeah. Yeah, I, I have no answers as well, except to say that I think we must do it. And, and it is a, it's a fine line, right? When do you over-monitor and when do you under-monitor? I think what we want to do, or what we're guided by, is that we also want other people to trust Singapore and to trust the platforms that we build. And what does it take for people outside of our community, our Singapore community, to trust us, and that is that we must be willing to put ourselves out to be accountable. I say this because sometimes, you know, uh, we have people from other regions who say, I don't quite know what I might be putting my money into if you are unable to give some form of reporting. And they have choice, they'd rather go somewhere else. Right. You know, so that's, that's the reality and we must be willing, but of course, it's how, the devil's right. in the detail. <laughs> Indeed. A, a quick story about yeah. trust in Singapore. Once I was cycling through Indonesia and I, I came across this village and we had coffee and, and, and they let us stay for the night as they do. And uh, we got to talking and he asked me for 40 numbers. And I'm like, why would you ask me for 40 numbers? And it turns out that they used the Singaporean 40 numbers for their own district lottery. <laughs> why do they do that? is because they trust Singapore and they trust our systems. They trust our processes. We have created, okay, maybe we have created lottery, <laughs> but they trust that we will not cheat them to a certain extent, right? So I, what I'm trying to say here is not buy 4D, please don't. Uh, although Toadbot is here, so buy 4D. <laughs> um, but that, Singapore is a unique place where we have the eyes and ears of people, where we, where we act like inherently have the trust of people. You know, it used to be when, when we were growing up in the 70s and 80s, you know, made in Japan, that's, that's like trust, right? Now Singapore is in that position. Uh, I think a lot of us don't know how lucky we are to be in that position, especially the young people, young people in this room. Please, you're very lucky to be here. 
please use it. Thank you. <laughs> um, we have four minutes left. One last question. Anybody from the floor? Burning question you'd like to ask the panel? Going once, going twice? <laughs> okay, no. Well, then I'll ask the panels. Maybe one last question from each of you. What is uh, maybe a call to action, perhaps, you have? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I'll start. Uh, but not quite a call to action, but more a reflection on platforms. We speak of platforms, um, and instinctively we think about online platforms. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think we're able to think about that because we have the physical platform already. Right. Platforms like this, mm -hmm. communities that each of us have built and want to expand and overlap with mm -hmm. other communities. And that is how we get to be able to think about an online platform and to think that it will succeed. So one can never replace the other, and we should not go too much one way or the other. Okay, very good advice. I think uh, we didn't get to talking about this, but um, perhaps one thing to share about platforms is uh, to be very conscious of who is included and who is excluded from platforms and what's the risk of building a particular platform in a particular way when we, you know, the unintended consequences of who we exclude from what we build. So access, keeping that in mind, yeah. I, I think I, I would like to get people to take away from what I've just said is that the only constant is change and, and we are in this place in time where change is so abrupt that we have to we have the challenge of being keeping our minds open to the kind of lives that the the younger people now are living and the kind of lives that we have lived and being able to keep an op a mind so open so that they can grow in their space which is totally new very different from what we have uh, and i think that is going to be very challenging on, on all of us and not only us but on our systems and our processes okay Thank you very much. Um, with that, um, we will close this session. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you to our speakers once again uh, for sharing their very interesting stories and experiences. Yeah, thank you.